that as a church, the definition really is that we are a family of servant missionaries. And so uh, what happens in the lives of our people, it happens to us. That we mourn with those who mourn, um, we celebrate with those who celebrate. And so this morning, um, we come with an attitude of mourning because of one of our elders, Bob Tucker, passed away last Thursday. Um, and for some of you, I know that may be a news, but he was battling heart disease and uh, just had uh, a lot of complications with that and so our hearts are heavy Uh, Bob was a tremendous man of faith and uh, the word that captures his character for me is he is generous generous with his words generous with his time and I don't think that this building would be here and this community would be here if it wasn't for his commitment and love for us and love for God so just want to begin this morning to share that, um, but also to pray and uh, just ask God to minister to us and speak to us. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm also, I'm always reminded that you, you say it is good to go to a house of mourning. It's good to grieve. It's good to feel broken at times, to admit that we are weak and that we need you, and we need your strength, Father, and we need your love, and we need your presence. And so, Father, we lift up those that are going through difficult times, even in this season, whether it's in our family with the Tuckers, Father, we ask for your comfort and mercy, or whether it's for those that are here today, maybe for the first time, and experiencing hardship and difficulty and wondering, how does God fit in this? And Lord, where does my faith, and where does my trust in you, how are you at work? Lord, I'd ask in Jesus' name, through the power of the Spirit, your voice would be clear to us. Our hearts would be at peace. And Lord, we'd hear your voice and know that we're in your presence today. Father, guide us as we study your word and may it speak truth into our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you want to grab a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one someplace in the vicinity in front of you. Uh, If you do not have one, feel free to take that home with you. We'd love to give that to you as a gift and take it home. You can also turn on your phones and to to open the Bible app, not just to go on your phone, right? Uh, In John chapter 2, let me me share with you what we're doing. Um, We've been going through this series called Everyday Mission, and today we're looking at this everyday zeal, everyday passion. But as we live on mission for God, what is, it, what is the passion, what is the commitment that drives us? And in this story, we're going to encounter Jesus doing something that seems somewhat uncharacteristic, maybe for the way that we view Jesus. He's going into a temple and cleansing it out, cleaning it, taking out that which is broken and that which doesn't reflect God, and really in a violent way, declaring these are the things that matter, that God not only commands us, he demands our worship. And in this passage, we see a picture of, of how sometimes there's things in life that are important, but they take too much of a priority in our life. And as they take too much of a priority, the, instead of reflecting God's character to the world, rather like the temple, we, we reflect more the passions of our hearts or the desires of our culture instead of the desires of God. And as we enter into this holiday season, things are going to get busy How about you? Things are getting busy already, just kind of looking, hey, this is Thanksgiving this week, and then Advent, if you don't know Advent's coming up December 2nd, kicking off into the Christmas season, and as we begin this this holiday season, just asking the question, you know, what is the primary desire of my heart? 
what am I chasing after? And if I had to evaluate the direction of my life, what would it say about what I'm worshiping? So let's jump into this passage in John chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 13. John 2 verse 13. And so the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken to them. This is the word of the Lord. All thanks be to God. Now I think, and and I could be wrong, I think Jesus was tough. We get a picture of Jesus as nice, but Jesus was a carpenter. He knew how to work with his hands. He knew what it meant to put in a hard day's work. And the image of Jesus we have here is not an image of one who is meek and mild or or temperate, but rather one who in some ways exhibits some violence. Now, not violence towards people, but violence towards the affections of people. See, Jesus was never one to tear somebody down for tearing them down's sake. But when he saw desires and passions that were set on things that were going to lead to death, it led to violence in his heart. And so what we see in this text is Jesus is coming to a place where people expected to encounter God. And instead of encountering God, they encountered selfishness, self-centeredness, commerce, greed. And he comes into the temple and he begins to clear out all the money changers and all those who are selling animals. Now, Before we get into that, we kind of got to get a picture of what's going on and what this story is about. If you don't know a lot about the Bible, um, one of the biggest celebrations in the Old Testament was Passover. And so Jews would come from all around to the city of Jerusalem, which was the hub of things, and to the temple to celebrate, kind of like Christmas coming on Easter or Christmas. They would all come to this area and they would celebrate the Passover together. Now, part of celebrating the Passover was making a sacrifice making an offering to God. Now, if you're traveling a long distance, it's hard to travel with pets. Now, you probably wouldn't sacrifice your pets, so that's not a good illustration, but you know what I mean. It's difficult to take animals with you, and certainly if you're on foot and you're traveling a long distance, that can be incredibly challenging. You know, I know uh, for us, we used to, spring break time, go to this ranch out in Glen Rose, Texas, beautiful area of Texas, And we'd always take our dogs. Now, we have little dogs, not your violent big dogs that some of you guys have that eat my dogs. We've got the little kind of ankle biter type puppies. And we would take those dogs with us. But see, a couple of times, and actually this seriously happened, we were driving and we couldn't find our dogs because we had packed the van completely full and we couldn't find them. 
And so in my mind, I thought, okay, we must have left him back of the house. So we're about to turn around. And then one of my kids looks, and this dog was kind of like in one of those compartment areas. He had scooted down under the floorboards and was just sitting there. But because the, the car was a mess, you know, we had all this stuff in there for a week, we couldn't find him. The whole point is traveling with animals is difficult. And so the reason that Jesus is angry is not because there's people selling things. It's not because there's commerce taking place, because there's, there's nothing wrong with selling one at somebody, an animal, tra- traveling a long distance. Uh, they also had money changers because they had to exchange coins to pay the temple tax. The reason he's angry is the temple was intended to glorify, to honor, to be a reflection of God. And something that was intended to be a reflection of God is now a reflection of self-centeredness and sin. And in the place of worship, there was now brokenness. And the people who were coming were not getting a true picture of God. And so what he does is he, he, he drives them out of the temple. He drives them out of that area that should have been a place where God's character, God's word, God's presence, God's, God's voice is heard. But instead, what was filling that place was profit. And what was filling that place was self-centeredness. You know, could you imagine someone taking a, a religious holiday and using it for profit? That doesn't happen, right? Get ready. You know, our culture uses events like that. And, and what happens is we begin sometimes, even in our own celebration, to rewrite the story. To rewrite what this season is about. To forget really who we are and what, what we're supposed to be focused on. And then what happens is some of the details, the incidentals, hey, they're important, bringing animals, exchanging money. Those are important tasks. But what happens is sometimes they become the central focus. And instead of being focused on, on cultivating a heart that loves God, we're focused on all the details and all the activities and the things that were intended to show us God, we miss God. See, that's what's happening in this story is they had turned something that should have reflected God to the world and turned it into something broken. And so watch this story. Watch how it plays out. You know, Jesus says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then in verse 18, if you want to follow along with me, the question comes to Jesus. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, let me translate that. On whose authority did you do this? What right do you have to come in here and tell us what to do? That's a good question. Because, you know, somebody comes in and starts turning over tables. That's, that's a fair question. <laughs> hey, by whose authority are you doing this? Now, notice the way that he answers that question. He's not ignoring it, but he says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Hey, on whose authority are you doing this? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And then the Jews says, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. They're asking the question, on whose authority are you demanding our zeal, our passion, our worship? And he's saying, on the authority of one who will be raised from the dead. See, the reason that Jesus has the authority to demand our obedience and worship is he is the one who has risen from the dead. You know, we don't obey God because we agree with God. I don't know if you know that. Now, some of you do agree. I mean, we agree that murder, I imagine some of you don't want to murder. 
And you don't have to obey that command, but we do have to obey the command of not holding on to bitterness and anger in our heart. You know, that's something that we don't obey because we like it. The reason we obey is because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. There's a lot of commandments in the Bible I don't like. I'd like to change them. I'd like to take them out. And sometimes, I don't, I don't know about you, I, as a pastor, even sometimes I may disagree with them. But you know why we obey them? He's saying, because I'm the one who is risen from the dead. I am the one who has authority over your life. That Jesus is not just telling us, here's how you live. What he's saying to us is, this is what you should love. That I have the authority to command your desires and passions. That's pretty bold. Because he's not just directing the worship. He's saying, your zeal is for the wrong things. And see, those leaders who should have been defending the people, you know, those leaders in, in organizations that should have been reflecting God's character, instead of reflecting God, they're reflecting a self-centered and broken self in a place that should have been all about the character and the power and the mercy of God. And Jesus cleans it out because in verse 17, he says, I've got a passion for one thing. And he says, this passion consumes me, and it's a passion and zeal for God. Because here's the challenge we all face. You're all zealous for something. We're all zealous. There's something right now in the priority of your desires that's going to trump everything else. Because see, when your desires fall into conflict, there's one desire that says to the rest, no, we're going to obey this desire. This is the direction we're going to head in. See, all of us are passionate for something. And what you're zealous for, it's going to determine how you spend your money. It's going to determine where you invest your time. It's going to determine who you speak to, how you speak to them, the direction that you go in life. Whatever we are zealous or worship, it has a forming effect in our lives. And so the question becomes, this holiday season, as we begin to move towards Thanksgiving and Christmas, what are you zealous for? What do you want? Jesus says, it's zeal for God that consumes me. When something's consumed, it's a totality. It's not that God's just on the periphery. He's got everything. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That if I'm gonna follow Christ, I'm gonna give up my life so that I might have the life that he wants for me. What is it this today, this week? What is it the passion, the center of your heart? You know, there's two ways when we think about being zealous for God. It's not really a word we use often, zeal. But it means a burning passion, a passion that directs our, our life and our choices. When it comes to being zealous for God, there's two things that stand out in this passage. And the first is that to be zealous means that we're zealous to know him, first and foremost. To know him, to love him, and to honor him. You know, one of the passages that's spoken to me so much is in Galatians and Paul says, not that we know God, and then here's the, here's the kicker, are you ready? But that he knows us. And I think it was one of those moments for Paul as he's writing, he's like, wow. You know, the truth is not that we know God, because see, our knowledge of God is so broken and incomplete. But here's the good news, God knows us. And so what he's saying is to be zealous for God begins with this idea that God's zeal is set on us. 
It's set on us to the degree that Jesus would come and take on human flesh and become a man and die on a cross. So why? So that I might know God and I might have confidence that he, he knows me. Hey, listen to this. If you want to turn to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, it says this. Jeremiah 9, 23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. How often do we boast that God knows us? You know, that would drive a different path in life. If I was so fixated that what I boast in is that God knows me and I know God, you know, how often do we talk about that? That's not a conversation that just kind of comes out, does it? You at the bank, you know, at the store, hey, I know God, God knows me. You know, if you did that, that may change your life. Because see, often what we boast in is accomplishments. Hey, this is what I did. This is what I have. I'm looking good today. I'm looking bad today. The heart is constantly boasting. We're constantly looking at something, an object of desire and pursuing it, saying this is what life is about. But see, what he's saying in this passage, what would it mean if, if our boast, if our zeal was for the fact that God knows us and I know him? And we walked in that kind of, kind of passion and commitment. You know, there's an author uh, by the name of D.A. Carson, and he captured this passage and he described it this way. He said, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayers in the temple, there is a bellowing of cattle and bleeding of sheep. But instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is the noisy business of commerce. Stuff. Acquiring, getting, whether it's approval, whether it's material, whether it's success. You know, our hearts chase after things and those things that we chase after and maybe for some of us even seize, they have a power to direct our lives. What are you zealous for? You know, what is it that right now Jesus would love to come in with a whip <laughs> and clean house? You know, can I admit to you, I got some of those things. I know I'm not supposed to say that. I'm a pastor, right? I'm perfect. But there are desires, there are passions that, you know, sometimes you have to allow Christ to come in and to address them. I think to address them, it means to admit this is the problem. You know, so often I find for Christians, we don't want to admit that the things we're living for is what we want. I'll talk to somebody and they'll say, you know, that's not what I want. Well, if it's not what you want, why are you living for it? Because if the decisions we make are taking us down a path to pursue certain things, that's what you want. Because you only do things that you want, right? For the most part. So we have to be honest that, you know, God wanting you, maybe you're not as high on my priority list. Sometimes it just begins by saying, God, maybe I don't want you. At least I don't want you in the full sense. I mean, if you don't admit that, how are you going to get there? Because see, what we want directs our life. And if we looked at our life and say, what does my life say about my passions, my commitments? And then to admit to God, God, would you change my wants so that I would want you above all else? What would it look like to honor God? You know, I read this week, and this is kind of crazy. Not that I read, but what I, what I read. <laughs> that that I, I read that uh, there is... 
in the United States, there is 16.5 square feet of mall space for every American. Congratulations. 16.5 square feet of mall space for every American. It goes on. We also have 23.6 square feet of retail space per American. Now, compared to other nations, because that's the, the key, right? That is twice the amount of retail space than Australia. It's five times the amount of retail space for the UK or any other European country. Because I think more than any other God, our nation bows at the feet of materialism and consumerism. We're about to enter that season. What are we passionate for? What's going to drive this holiday season? What are we going to chase after? You know, Haggai, and Haggai, i got to tell you, he didn't get a lot of press in the church today, but he was a prophet in the Old Testament. And he was a prophet during a period of time in the nation's history when they were exiled, meaning uh, the Babylons, Babylons, Babylonians came in and wiped out Jerusalem, wiped out the temple, took them off into captivity. And Haggai was a prophet that spoke for the Lord as they were returning back into Jerusalem. And the desire of the people was, hey, we're back. We're coming back. Let's rebuild the temple. But something happened. As they started building the temple, another desire, another priority started to take precedence. And listen to the way that he describes it. It says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And the prophet said, it is, a time for you, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Meaning, is, it time, is this the time just to build for ourselves, to be comfortable, to experience our comforts and pleasures while God's glory, God's honor, God's name is left in ruin? Because see, instead of building the temple, what happened is they, they said, I need a better house. I need some more things. See, they were discipled more by their culture than by Christ. They were more open to allowing their desires because that's what's happening right now. Our culture's taking your little heart and just molding it in a course and a direction that's resulting in the behavior that you have today. And so what would it look like if our passion was being molded by what God wants rather than just what our world wants. You know, Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter three. He said, but whatever I have gained, I count loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, and notice the language he says, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Man, I wish we could sit in that surpassing worth. Every single day to recognize the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, what is he saying? Because I know him, I can give up all things. Because see, what you need to, to kind of push out a, a negative affection is the compelling power of a greater affection. W what it means is that really push out a, a broken affection, you need a, a much more compelling, much more attractive affection, a much more attractive desire. You're not just gonna overcome through willpower because what happens is when we overcome one sin, we just go to another. It's just it's more socially acceptable. And so we may move from lust and we go on to greed because no one's going to say anything about greed. You can't see greed necessarily because you don't know what somebody has. But see, greed is something that it has a hold of the heart. It's about the affections. And often what happens in the Christian life is instead of allowing our desires and affections to be molded by the surpassing worth of knowing God, it gets molded by the events and the experiences of life. And see, those are the things that Jesus wants to drive out. 
Because see, he, he's saying to us, I am the one who has authority to command your love. You know, there's an interesting term that I learned this week. It's called super flat culture. Now, I don't know why they call it that, but there's a book by this guy named Mark Sayers called The Road Trip, and he talks about how our culture is this super flat culture. And I'm gonna read what he said because I found this amazing. He says, in a super flat culture where nothing matters, we escape into obsessions and hobbies, interests that bear little ultimate consequence. In a commodified culture, we move and shift around meaning, giving weight to things that do not deserve the mountains of time and attention. In the 21st century, we will be a century mark by consumption, but also by flagrant misuse of time. With religion off the agenda, our culture finds new avenues of devotion and distraction. Instead of moving us towards relationships and people, the imminent super flat culture pushes us towards things. Millions of dollars, millions of hours spent in the 21st century will be spent going through television series, scanning social network sites, gorging on celebrity gossip, downloading music, flipping through magazines, and playing computer games. Things will take precedence over people. Meaningless activities will overtake our lives. And there's nothing wrong with these interests and hobbies in their right place. But the 21st century culture will gorge on such activities. The real issue of human existence that has sat in front and center of human consciousness have become super flat in this world, shoved aside. They are too heavy to be carried on the road. Instead, we buzz across the surface of life, never venturing below the surface. What is it that has captured our affections and desires? You know, when we talk about the temple, the purpose of the temple was really a foreshadowing. And by a foreshadowing, it didn't just point to this structure in the Old Testament, but rather the beauty of Scripture is cohesive from old to new. And when Jesus came, he was known as the true temple. He was the fulfillment of the temple in the Old Testament. Because in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt. In Jesus, the Lamb of God was sacrificed. Jesus was the true priest. And he was the place where the Spirit of God dwelt. Which means that when we come to know God, we always come through the temple. It's not like things have changed. It's just the temple has a name, and that name is Jesus. And so in John chapter 1, verse 14 John writes it this way. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt. Now that word in the Greek is tabernacled. See, they would have understood that language, that God dwelt in the the tabernacle and in the temple in the Old Testament, but now he's come and he's dwelling through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Son sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, it is through Jesus Christ that we know the fullness of God, which means that in this season, we gotta keep our eyes on Christ. Now, second, not only does that mean that being consumed for God is to honor him, to love him, to pursue him, but second, that should overflow in our lives to say, hey, I want something better for others. And if we truly love God, then we wanna share that love and that passion with others. You know, often I think the reason people stay away from church is because the church isn't walking with Jesus. They don't want our advice. They don't need new advice. What they need is to see the presence and the power of God at work in our lives. 
And if that is the power at work in us, it should be a power that compels us to be zealous, to share that passion with others. You know, Jesus said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all the nations. You know, the reason that Jesus got so angry wasn't just, again, because they were selling. It was because of where they were selling. There were structures within the temple areas, rooms, and one of those areas on the outer part of the temple was called the Court of Gentiles. See, it was that region, that area of the temple that non-Jews would gather and come to know the God that the Israelites worshipped. It was supposed to be a place where the nations would say, you know, there's something unique about these people. There's something unique about their relationships, their marriages, their relationship to money, to time, to investment, and even the way that they treat me, an alien and a stranger in their country. They are generous and kind. There was supposed to be something different in that place. So imagine yourself coming to this temple, hearing about the mighty power of God, and yet instead of seeing a selfless, self-sacrificing group of people, you find money, pride, and self-centeredness. That's why Jesus is angry, because we've turned something that should reflect God's character into something that serves our purposes. That hurts. We've turned something that should reflect the beauty of God's character, and it's become something that more reflects our own purposes. You know, when the temple was built back in uh, 1 Kings in in chapter 8, Solomon prayed over the temple. And listen to the language that he used to describe what would happen when people gathered. Solomon says, likewise, when a foreigner, when a non-Jew who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays at the temple in this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do to all for which the foreigner calls you to do. Now why? In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name, fear you, as do people in Israel, and that they may know this house that I have built is called by your name. He's saying that when they show up, they will see something different. That when people gather who do not know the gospel and do not know God, they would say of us, you know, I may not agree with them, but I can't disagree with how they live. I can't disagree with their generosity, with their mercy, with their compassion, with their justice. That they would see in us, and they should see in us, something unique, something that's set apart. Because if our heart is captivated for a God that was willing to sacrifice for us, that should result in a very different life than the life that our culture is pursuing. You know, there was a restaurant up in Boston then when we used to live up there and and I gotta be honest I hated the restaurant really disliked it but they had one thing that no other restaurant had have you ever been to a restaurant like that no one else served what they were serving and because of that it caused it it caused me to go back now I didn't want to go back I didn't like it but it was the only restaurant that served what I liked and so I went back well in some ways that's the church that when people gather, there should be something about us that stands out. Now, not in our perfection, because I think that's where we go as Christians. We start beating ourselves up. Oh, I stink. I'm a terrible Christian. I'm not doing this right. Uh, That's not what it's about. It's about our zeal and passion for the Lord, whether that's in our sin and brokenness and sadness and, and grief, or whether that's in our obedience and happiness and joy. In all things, we're turning our heart and our eyes 
and our passion and commitment towards the Lord, even when we don't feel it. They should say there's something different among these people. And so are we passionate not just to pursue God, but then also to share with others this passion that God has given to us? Because see, here's the, here's the beautiful truth we're gonna close on and get out of here, is we are that temple. When we talk about the temple of the Old Testament that many would come to and, and encounter God's presence, we are now that temple, meaning both in ourselves individually, but us corporately, we are supposed to be the place where God's presence dwells. And when people come to us, whether in this church or to us individually, what are we pointing them to? Just to ourselves? Maybe to what we want, to a broken consumer system of desires and affections? Or are we a place where God's presence, God's presence dwells in a way that, that causes us to rely upon him more? You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, listen to these words. Do you not know that you are God's temple? and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And church, we are that temple. See, that's not an aspiration, that's our identity. The presence of God, whether we are walking in sin or righteousness, is always with us. And he wants to manifest his presence through us. Ephesians chapter 2, 22, in him you were also being built together into a dwelling place a dwelling place for God who would dwell there by his spirit. You know, when you have zeal for something, it will consume you. You know, I know I've followed in my life and can easily get caught up in passions and desires that if I followed to their natural course, they'd lead to death. Now, maybe not physical death, but financial death. I think some of us have experienced that following your heart's desires and passions. That zeal consumes you and it leads to death. And, and listen, I think all of us know that there's passions we follow and you have followed and it, it can lead and it has led to marital death or maybe relational death. See, when there is a consuming passion in your heart, it, it's gonna consume. But see, the beauty of the passion for God is in Jesus. Jesus was so committed to God, so consumed with God that it did lead him to death. But see, in that death, the beauty is we find life. This is not a story of what God doesn't want to give us. This is a story of what God wants us to celebrate and enjoy, what the true satisfaction in life is found. That he's not keeping us from our desires. He's saying there is a better desire. And in Jesus, when that desire consumed him, it led him to such self-sacrifice that it resulted in our life. Life in Christ and life with God. And his encouragement to us is, would you lose life to find it? What does that mean? It means to find life in me and in the gospel and cultivating our desires for him. That's all we're talking about today, church. We're not getting on, not buying Christmas presents or not celebrating, not having a good time, putting up lights. That's all good stuff. But in that, cultivating a heart that is zealous for the things of God and overflows in a life of obedience towards God. Do you see that? I'm just saying, hey, watch out. It's coming, right? We gotta put on the brakes, we gotta slow it down. We gotta even today, maybe as we're starting to close, to say, Lord, we're getting there. We're coming into Thanksgiving. We're supposed to be thankful. And then we're gonna come into Christmas. And Lord, I want this season to be a time of awaiting your presence and setting my affections on you. And so whatever affections right now are out of line, all you gotta do is admit it. 
It's called repentance and faith. God doesn't ask us to change our life. He just asks us to admit that our lives need to be changed, and then he changes us. And to say to the Father today, Father, my affections, my desires need to change. Would you begin to put that passion and zeal in my heart for you so that this season, this year, the rest of this holiday season, I might have a passion and commitment that overflows in obedience to you. Are you with me? He's not asking us to do a lot, just to admit and then to walk by faith. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that your zeal that should have overwhelmed us and resulted in our punishment and rejection, it resulted in our salvation. That, Father, you revealed your heart in a way that mystified us, that Jesus would die on the cross, that you were so so zealous for the Father, so obedient to the Father, that you died so that we might have life. And that life, you tell us, should be a life of abundance and freedom, but not when we're not checking our desires and asking through the Spirit, Father, would you create in me a clean heart? Oh God, would you sift me? Would you know me, Father? Would you wipe away the deceitfulness of my own desires that are trying to protect things that are keeping me from you? And Father, would you renew in us a steadfast and right spirit? Lord, would you do that work in us? And Father, as a community, would we be the kind of church It's not just walking in perfection. We're walking in passionate commitment to following Christ so that others may say, you know, there is something there. It's not perfection, but it's Christ. And it's his perfection flowing through us. May your life be the life that others encounter. In Jesus' name.